Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Maybe some of you that are listening to me right now, you are the product of a broken promise, whether it's a marriage situation, or maybe it didn't happen to you directly. You could be a son or a daughter of a mom or dad, and one of them broke their vows and ran off and whatever, and your whole life has never been the same. So promises that are made are only as good as they are kept, and if they're not kept, then they're not any good. And in order for them to be kept, there needs to be behind it a degree of what we call faithfulness. There had to be dependableness behind it. And we do need to trust that. I was reared in a very wonderful home, and I thank God for my parents, and you hear me talk about them a lot. But one of the areas that my dad did uh, to us is that he knew the seriousness of making a promise. So when I'd say, Dad, could we go to the beach? He'd give me his response. If Dad, will you teach me how to drive? And he'd give me this response. And he always knew it was very important to keep your word. That was, he, in fact, his famous words were always, Stan, your word is your bond. And those of you who know me, you know that integrity is a, a critical with me when we say something that we follow through the best we possibly can. Now, here's where it gets a little sideways. Because my dad knew it was very important, he then would not make a promise. He would always say, we'll see. That was his famous phrase. We'll see. Can we do that? We'll see. We'll see. So that he could go down on record of never breaking a promise. Now, you might say, wow, what a wise guy that is. Let me tell you the backside of that is. The backside of that is, then you never really know. You don't know, can you really trust him? Are we going to do it? Are we not going to do it? And so there's this degree of instability, and you never are really sure about what's going to happen. Because making a promise and then keeping that promise and being faithful to that is actually what breeds healthier relationships. So it's not wrong to make promises. In fact, it even says in Scripture it's okay to make a vow. It's when you make a vow and don't keep it. That becomes the problem. A lot of people misinterpret that verse. So vows and promises are good. So that brings us now to the Lord. I believe the Lord is the author of all of that and the truth and all that goes with it. So he then becomes the one who makes the promise. He is faithful enough in his power to keep the promise. And we've been studying the book of Romans, and he did that in his demonstration with the nation of Israel. In fact, he talked a lot about Israel, and Old Testament, New Testament, and every promise he has made to Israel, he has kept. Now, some of those promises he made to Israel were what we'll call conditional promises. If you do this, then I'll do that. Then he made those promises that are called unconditional promises. It doesn't matter what you do, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure this happens based on my word and who I am. Now, in that, there are future things that the Lord is going to do for Israel, and we can see it as we read the newspaper and as we kind of kind of look into the future like a prognosticator, we can see what's going to be happen, happening to Israel. What we don't know is exactly when that's going to happen. And the reason we don't know when it's going to happen is because the Lord didn't make a promise of when that was going to happen. He just said, it's going to happen. So we know based on past history that he will do that. Now, why am I telling you that? Because from chapter 1 through chapter 11, we spent a great deal of time talking about the veracity of a God who is very gracious to the world, very merciful, and he's providing his son as a way of escape, whatever the problem might be for eternal life. And he did that. 
Now, I wanted to take a break before I begin chapter 12 because we're going to do a major shift in the book of Romans next week, and you want to be a part of that, and I'll tell you about that next week. But I wanted to finish by talking about God, the ultimate promise keeper, not just to Israel. I looked to Israel because if he did that with Israel, and he said he was going to do it, and he did it, then he's also the ultimate promise keeper to Christians, those like you and me, that he will keep a promise to us. So I picked out seven of them, mostly from the New Testament, and I'll give you one from the Old Testament, which will be my kind of memory verse for you all, those of you that want to memorize some scripture at the end of the message. But another reason I'm giving this to you is because we do live in a world that people will break their promises. Now, some of them will be right in your face, till death do we part, and then all of a sudden a person then walks away from that. We get that, you get that. But then there are some that they never really say we promise, but it's by implication, and that would be you buy a car, you assume it's going to be safe. They used all the crash dummies. They did all the things that they should. They talk about the safety equipment that's in there, including airbags. It's all around you, that kind of little bubble. So if you get in a wreck, you really don't get hurt. And then you find out that they're faultily made or that they weren't made to the specs that they were said to be made. And then people have died and been maimed. And that is basically has changed the life of that family as a result forever because a promise was implied and it wasn't kept through faithfulness. So you can have people break their promise to you right to your face. They can also break their promise to you just by an assumption that they allow you to make and they don't keep it. So I'm here, I hope here, to bring to you one who will always keep every promise that is made to you and me because he's the only one who can not only make the promise, he can also keep the promise. So if you need a sense of stability in your life of a promise keeper, it will be the Lord. Now let me share this with you. The neat thing about the Lord's promises is that they're not only promises for the uh, sweet by and by, and we'll see the first couple on that, but those promises are also for the nasty here and now. So I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know if even me beginning this introduction, you're feeling very uncomfortable because, number one, you've had a promise broken to you, and you know your life's not the same because of that. They weren't faithful. They weren't dependable. Or maybe you're flooded with a degree of guilt because you know that you made promises, and you tried to come up with a million reasons why you had to break that promise, but inside you know that those were just kind of a straw reasons and not real reasons. And I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip, but I am here to... Get us all around God's Word, me too, to understand who God is. And at the end of today, we're going to celebrate who He is, especially around our communion service, because He made a promise that He was going to die and rise again. And He did all of that, and we're celebrating what He did and the fact that He's coming back again. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to get them out, because I want to talk today about God, the ultimate promise keeper to Christians. You can depend upon God, the ultimate promise keeper, for seven biblical principles that you can then take to the bank. And maybe some of you are parents, you might want to learn these and have your kids memorize them. You might use these in counseling with others. But most of all, own it in your own heart, in your own mind. So let's see if we can begin with number one. All right, the ultimate promise keeper to actually keep his promises. He actually keeps his promises. And by my, how important that is. If you will look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, and this is what you read, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. And then it tells us why or because. Because he who promised, which is the Lord, he's the one who promised, is faithful. So what you want to do is circle the word faithful and circle the word promise because technically you really don't have a fulfilled promise unless the person is faithful to be able to keep that promise. It's just an idle word. So faithfulness and promise really go together. Now, here's something to discuss on the way home. Are you 
Are you going to keep a promise because you're faithful? All right. Or are you faithful and that helps you keep the promise? So try to see where that is. When I look at this, when it says, for he who promised is faithful, that tells me the promise actually comes out of his faithfulness. He is faithful. That is his very nature, that he is a faithful, dependable God. You can trust him. You can trust this word. It's not going to change. He's unchanging. And so he is very, very dependable. So out of him comes a God who makes a promise. Now, I'd like to encourage you that you might look through Scripture. One person said, and pretty rightly so, he said, really, the Bible is just one book containing about 33,000 promises of God that he's made to you and me, that God is a God who's made a promise. Now, some of you might say, no, he hasn't kept all of his promises. Well, I don't want to parse each one of those reasons, but I'd like you to know that God cannot break his promise because he cannot change from his very nature of who he is. So I want you to see that who God is is a God who himself, by very nature of his character, he is faithful in what he's doing. So you'll see that as we bring this out. Now watch back to the verse again. Look at it again. It says, for why? He promised because he is faithful. But what does it say to us? Lay hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That means that we have hope for something in the future because what is in the future has been promised by someone who is very, very faithful. I can trust in that. I often like to use the illustration, and I, ha- I hate to be this crass, but I think it relates to more of you that uh, maybe live on the mainland than we who live on the island. But when Carol and I were on the mainland, you know how you travel a long distance? It seems like your wife doesn't have the same bladder capacity as the gas tank capacity of your vehicle. Do you understand what I mean? Some of you know exactly what I mean. And I'm one of those that I see life as a challenge, not a challenge against Carol. I kind of have a challenge with myself, which is how far can I go on a tank of gas without running out? Now, my wife is, is just nervous because when I travel like that, I even wait for the light to come on, and then I try to make it to the gas station. Now, so far, God has um, been very merciful and gracious to me. I have not run out of gas, at least not when Carol is there, but I have not run out of gas. But we have recognized that there are times when, anyway, you need to use the rest stop, okay? And it's so comforting to know as you're traveling down the interstate that there is a sign, and they often let you know ahead of time, and it'll say, rest area, two miles. How many have ever seen those while you're traveling on the... And when you really need to use the rest area, you are so excited. It's like, wow, we're almost there. There's the rest area. I hate to tell you how many times I would see that sign and we would all light up. And I knew we could make it there. Never ran out of gas, only to find as we were ready to pull off that little ramp to go to it, it was blocked and said, out of service, you have to go to the next one. You'll never know how that devastates you. Well, here's what I'm saying about this verse. You can hold on to that hope, that anticipation of joy that you have, unwavering, never have to worry about it, never have to doubt about it. Why? Because he promises, because his character is faithful. So now, I said this verse first for this reason. The other six principles that I'm going to give to you almost goes in like a domino. Once you own that, the rest of them, you're going to see how God fulfills it in many important areas of our life. But until you own point number one, that he is faithful and he makes a promise, that's why our hope will never have to waver, you won't get the rest of these. So you do need to understand that God is a God who is faithful. He keeps his word. Therefore, we can have hope. So what areas would be important? Let's go to number two. 
We can depend upon him as the ultimate promise keeper because he will hold you in his forever family. Now, that is very important to me. I'm glad that the Lord will give me a hamburger. I'm glad the Lord will provide me with water, that type of thing. I get that. But that's usually for the nasty here and now. What I want to know is where do I go when I die? I was speaking in a funeral recently, and while I was speaking at this funeral, you know, we are called upon to speak at funerals often filled with people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. More cases than not, I have preached funerals of unsaved people, non-Christians, than I have saved people. And you wonder, how do you, pastor, give a message to a group of people who themselves aren't saved? You already know that the deceased isn't saved, and he's, in case he's, since he hasn't trusted Christ, he's not in heaven. How do you bring some bit of comfort to everybody? Here's the phrase that I use at this point of the sermon, and I give it to you as well to encourage you. When I get to that point, I generally say something like this. Dear ones, if you're a lot like me, this person today gave us an opportunity unwillingly. He didn't know. He didn't choose to do this. But by his death before us, he provided us an opportunity to slow our life down for some 20 or 30 minutes to begin to ask us some of the most important questions of our life, which would be this. As we're seated out here, we don't go to events like this. We don't spend time sitting here, and we really can't do much of anything else. Maybe we can hide and play on our our smartphone on Facebook or something. But in reality, we're there. And what are we doing? We're asking ourselves, why am I here? Someone died. What am I looking at? My brother, my sister, my friend. And now we begin to think, what will I be like at the end? Will I be cremated or will it be a body burial? Will um. Will I be sick? Will I die in my sleep? Will I die of a disease? And then, ooh, what happens after I die? And by then, if they didn't ask those questions while we were going through the sermon, they actually now are asking them. And I'm able to tell them what life after death is all about for those who have the opportunity now while they have their mind to be able to settle that eternal destiny. And it all is found on the faithfulness of God to keep his promise. So what is it? Well, let's look at the verse here, and I'll open it up just a little bit. Look in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. To hold you in his forever family. Here's how the verse goes. It says, if we are faithless, all right? It says, he remains faithful. So you may want to underline that. He remains faithful. Then it says, why? Why does he remain faithful? It says, for he cannot deny himself. You would think he cannot deny me salvation. No, no, no. He can't deny himself, which ramps it up a notch. Because what it's really saying here is, he remains faithful because he cannot deny his own character. He cannot deny his own nature. So even when we're not faithful, or we're faithless, he still can't deny himself. Now, how does that fit into salvation? Some people might want to read that and say, even if I don't have the faith, it doesn't matter. He's going to take us all to heaven. The problem with that thinking is nowhere is that found in Scripture. In fact, that is so convoluted, that's like a man trying to come up with his own solution and then believing that to be true only to find upon death that it's not only not true, the consequences of it are horrific. So we have to go back to the Bible. So where do we begin? We have to begin before the faithless, oddly enough, and go to the faith. We come into the Christian life as being without faith. I don't have any faith. Well, maybe I do. Maybe my faith is in my works. God says, nope. 
Well, maybe it's in my religion or my religiosity, whatever that is. And that's a broad stroke of any religion, any belief system that somehow acknowledges an afterlife with a, with a, a, a powerful being in it. All right? Whatever that religion is, I have confidence in whatever that is. It doesn't really matter. All roads go to heaven. No, no. Or how about a combination of good deeds and some religiosity, and I have confidence in that. The Lord says, it's not the faith that gets us to heaven. It's the object of our faith that gets us to heaven. That's why he says over here to both of those that none of those good deeds that I do get to heaven, social or religious. So all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how much faith I have. It does matter what I have my faith in. So now we leave that alone and realize now I have to depend upon the right thing that gets me into heaven. So in the New Testament, particularly in the book of John, the prevalent word in that gospel is the word believe. But throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, it's believing in the right object. The Old Testament, it was referred to as the Messiah, the Lord Jehovah. All right, We're believing in the coming Savior, which would be then Christ. We look back to the cross now because Jesus is the Christ. He did come. He did all that stuff on the cross, rose again from the dead. We now trust in Christ who died and rose again, so we look back. That's the faith. We place our faith in Him. So salvation is by faith alone, but not just that. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we place our faith in Christ. Now, where does this verse come in? Well, here it says, if we are faithless. You might want to mark the word we there, because when he's saying we, you have to say, who's the we in this passage, all right? The one who's writing this is the Apostle Paul. We know he's a believer. We know it in Scripture. He defined that he was. God identified him as a believer. He's a believer in Christ. So when he says we... He then must mean not we as lost people that are non-Christians. It would be we who are Christians. So that means he is speaking to those that know Christ as Savior. Well, that sounds weird. If we who trusted Christ are faithless, all right, are, what's, what, what does that mean then? We, we don't have that faith there. So let's now make it really practical for where you, you and I live. I don't know that this happened to you, but it did happen to me. And I find that a lot of people go through the same thing. I remember it was on a Thursday night in 1966 that Carol uh, brought me the knowledge of Jesus Christ being the Savior and the only hope of heaven and shared, shared with me in Scripture that if I would trust Christ, I'd have everlasting life. So right then, I trusted Christ. Boom, it was over. Now, I do remember that the next week, they gave the invitation. If you're trusting Christ as your Savior, you'd like someone maybe to pray for you, let us know, slip up your hand. And so my mind went something like this. Well, just in case I didn't trust Christ good enough the week before, I'm going to trust you right now. Now, I did that for about four or five weeks until Carol leaned over and she says, why do you keep asking for prayer to trust Christ? I thought you trusted Christ. And I said, I, I did, but just, just in case, I have some doubts. And she very lovingly said, you fool. No, she didn't say that. She said, no. She said, let me share with you this Bible verse. So then she shared the Bible verse, and in my ignorance, I took it by faith just like that, and it gave me such great peace. Since then, I've studied, and I understand the context of it. Now let's take it a little bit further. Let's take it into a world where you now trusted Christ. You really trusted him when you were X years. A little while later, you now begin to have doubts about it, and you wonder, did I, did I really trust Christ or didn't trust Christ? I don't have a lot of time to unpack this. Because sometimes you think you trusted Christ and you really didn't. And that'll cause some great doubts. Sometimes you could trust Christ and you didn't build on your faith. And later on you can have doubts and you'll think that you've lost your salvation. And you really haven't. But in reality, we all have doubts. So let's see how safe you think you are right now. How many would say that since the time you've trusted Christ till the time of this sermon, 
you've had at least one moment of doubt about your own salvation, and you're willing to at least raise your hand, at least once. Would you raise your hand? How many do we have here? I think if you're honest, all of our hands go up. So now what happens? Does that mean that when I have a doubt that I have now lost my salvation? Well, the answer is no to that. Why? Because then it would say, he who keeps on believing is a Christian. Nowhere does it say that. So again, it'll have some doubts. Now, I was so grateful to be born in my mom and dad's family. And I grew up in a home, we're only second generation Americans. And my dad and mom were reared in, at the time in life where that when children were to be seen and not heard, if you did something bad, you got disciplined. Sometimes, you know, really disciplined, but you got disciplined. I never felt like they hated me. But I could tell you, though, that when I got disciplined, sometimes I would go back to my room and I would say to myself, they're not my parents. If they really were my parents, they wouldn't treat me like this. Have any of you ever thought that before? I see some of you going like this, but you won't do it because your mom's sitting next to you. But anyway, going back to this. Now, just because that moment you said to yourself, that parent is not my parent, the moment you stopped believing, did that nullify the fact that your parent was your parent because you stopped believing? No. Your mom gave birth. You are that child. You'll always be that child. You can leave the house. You can change your name, but you will always be that child of that parent. It can't break. Now, why am I telling you that story? Listen carefully, theologically. When you trust Christ to save you, you've heard the term, I've been born again. I've been born from above. You know then by believing in Christ, you are then made a child of God to them who believe on his name. All right? So you're a Christian then. Now, even though you become a Christian right then, if you have doubts later on, that will not nullify God from being your father just because you have doubts. Now, what verse will help you get through those times? It's this verse right here that says, if we are faithless. In other words, if we have that momentary time of lacking some faith, some doubt, something happened, it says he remains faithful. Now, when you write that down, underline the word, not faithful now, underline the word remains. That means he can't change his faithfulness. He will always be faithful. No matter how we live, no matter what we think, no matter who we are, once we trust Christ, he is always faithful. And he remains faithful whether we trust him or not. Then it goes on to say, for he cannot deny himself. So you can trust in the fact that he will save you. One last point, and then I'll go on to the next. You can trust this so much because, again, it's not us and our faith that keeps us saved. What keeps us saved is his nature, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, so he keeps me saved. Now, how does he keep me saved? Listen carefully. John 6.37 says that he will never cast us out. John 6.39 says he will never lose us. Where'd Stanley go? He must have been bad. He ran away. He never loses us. Okay, And thirdly, it says in John 10, 28, we are kept in his hand. All right, We don't hold on to his, he holds on to us. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says we are kept saved, we are kept in his forever family by his power. So now look at this verse. I am kept by his faithfulness, I'm kept by his nature, I'm kept by his power, so he holds me forever. All I have to do is get in the door by placing my faith in the door, who is Jesus Christ, so I can have eternal life. So, dear ones, I pray that you will trust Christ as Savior, because once you do, no matter what you might go through in life, you will never lose your salvation. He will never leave you. He cannot do that, because his nature says that. Now, the world wants to logically think, well, it must be bad you can leave and change your name. No, you can't do that if you authentically trusted Christ as your Savior. Now, 
I will tell you that he will be your father. And if you do sin afterwards, while he won't cast you out, he won't lose you, he will keep you in his hands, he also will spank you occasionally, you know, get your attention. Because he loves you too much to just leave you like that. Which brings us now to number three. His faithfulness is not just who he is, it is that, but from it we are kept by him. But he just doesn't let us be saved and he says, okay, I'm going to keep you saved until finally you croak. He doesn't say that. He says, I know that I saved you, but I saved you for a purpose. And that purpose is to bring glory to me. And the greatest glory that I receive from you is when you, from the inside out, worship me by your life. So that brings us to number three, to keep you growing. You can depend upon the ultimate promise keeper to keep you growing. Look at the verse. You'll have to really listen carefully as I go through it because I want to point some thoughts out here so you can see where this is coming from. So not only am I kept, he also wants me to keep on growing. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The word sanctify means to be set apart, to be made pure and holy for a purpose. In other words, he sets you apart for a great purpose. And he says, you entirely. That means he wants your entire being sanctified. So it's not just part of your life, not just your eyes, not just your hands, but the whole you. And he proves that by the rest of the verse. It says, and may your spirit and soul and body. That's in other words of saying the totality of you. So may you in totality be sanctified and be preserved complete, all right, without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this has a twofold application. One, you will be kept saved. Number two, you'll be kept growing. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.